Well, in recent decades, Russian icon painting has been discovered by the West. Now it is exhibited in museums without any idea of shame. Collectors seek them out. More and more books appear devoted to the study of icon painting. Therefore, it is perhaps interesting to remember how very recent this study of icons as a work of art from a aesthetical point of view is. So far as I know, the first time any question was asked about the cultural significance, the aesthetical value of Russian icons, it was around 1830 by the German writer and critic Goethe. Goethe was interested to know how high is Russian, are Russian icons as an art form, and how are they related to the arts of Western Europe. In particular, he had heard about a school of icon painting in Suzdal, and he wanted to know something more about this school. He decided to apply for information to the Queen of Wolfenburg, because she was a Russian Grand Duchess, Maria Pavlovna, sister of Alexander I. Maria Pavlovna was very short of information on this subject, but she was good enough to forward a note to the Ministry of the Interior in St. Petersburg, asking if they could help. The Minister of the Interior got in touch with the governor of the province of Vladimir, because it is in Vladimir that the town of Suzdal is situated. The governor of Vladimir was rather surprised, but he made some inquiries. And after a few weeks, he had a report from Suzdal, from the, from the local police in Suzdal, <laughs> saying that so far as they knew, there never had been any school of icon painting in Suzdal. But in any case, they had checked, and they called in the local clergy. And the clergy also were of the same opinion. However, the clergy gave them the names of a few icon painting villages near to Vladimir, where the craft of painting icons was passed down from father to son and was still practiced. These were the icon painting villages, of course, of Palyak, Mistira, and Holui. Perhaps that was what Goethe had in mind. Well, Goethe didn't get any information at all. But something else happened. The Russian public, you see, Russian educated public, for the very first time had heard this question posed. And people, quite prominent people like Karamzin were involved. And I must say that the Russian educated public were very much astonished. What's this, you see? Goethe asking about medieval Russian religious paintings. Quite extraordinary. You see, what was culture in the beginning of the 19th century in Russia? Culture? It was uh, French culture. It was uh, neoclassicism, Gothic revival, uh, academic painters, Byron, Walter Scott. <laughs> and suddenly Goethe asking about icon paintings. Really quite extraordinary. Now, there are really a number of reasons why this should be, and it shouldn't surprise us, and why the question had perhaps to be asked by a foreigner rather than a Russian. And the first most important reason was an attitude of mind. You see, Russians were accustomed to thinking about icons in quite a different way. For Russians, icons had always been a cult object, 
they have their place within the context of orthodox worship and belief. They had a function that without them, the, the wholeness of, of truth as revealed by orthodoxy wouldn't exist, you see. It would be this, this essential for orthodoxy, the essential part of orthodox doctrine. And therefore, you may remember, for instance, that in the 16th century, Russia it was officially uh, orthodox theocratic monarchy. The Russian Muscovite state existed solely for the practice of orthodoxy as a Christian society, just as today the Soviet society exists for only one reason, practice of communism. What is some similarity? And in this time, icons being part of orthodox doctrine were an affair of state, and questions touching the, the icons were debated, along, along with other state matters, by a Russian Tsar. You remember councils in 1551, Svetlana Sobor, then in 1553, the famous question was asked by Viscovati about icons. And you remember that they, they asked, the Tsar asked several questions. How should the Holy Trinity be represented? And the answer was given to him, it should be represented like Andrei Radnevsky, like Andrei Rublev had done, and like the Greek Byzantine masters had done. It didn't mean at all that we must imitate the color harmony of the Greek masters. It meant only from the point of view of form. You see, they weren't interested in ascetical point of view at all. It was quite different for them. How indeed could one separate the icons from their function as icons and consider them as works of art? This is something, you see, quite a new concept. Now, for instance, here we have got a very interesting, rare icon. It's one made for the priestless sect, which is a sect of old believers who absolutely had no, no, no clergy, nor the possibility of ever having any clergy. Now, by chance, this morning, some workmen who were working in our huts they saw this icon and they asked what it was, and I explained a bit about it. And you see, they asked the first question, is it worth anything? <laughs> From a commercial point of view, of course. And uh, uh, before I opened my mouth to reply, you see, immediately the foreman said, no, it's, it's a religious object, couldn't be worth anything. Um, and they then said, well, certainly from our point of view, we wouldn't give it any place in, in our backyard, wouldn't hang it in the backyard. It's very interesting, you see, because this is absolutely the attitude of 19th century educated person. Certainly it's interesting from, as an archaeological object, if you're interested in study of Russian popular piety, of Russian sects, because Russian government destroyed many of these icons, they're very rare in Soviet Russia, you don't find very many even. They're rare. But to say it's an object of beauty, is it really an object of beauty? Well, surprisingly enough, Today, so modern art critics do consider it a work of beauty, and they find beauty in it that was completely not to be seen, not by 19th century at all. They admire it for its simplicity, for its primitive quality, for its truth, for its texture, perhaps, and so on. All these values which never existed at all in the 19th century. So that, of course, you see, first thing is our, our aesthetical values, our face is changing all the time, and this comes into its own. Now suddenly it's compared with an African sculpture, but uh, in such things it's very strange, you see, because if you told this to the man who made it, certainly he would be very much surprised. And incidentally, if you said to him, we consider it a most beautiful work of art, he would be equally surprised. What he wanted was to express an idea, an ideology, and what he wanted to be sure of was that he left nothing out, so that nothing was left to chance, the number of the cupolas, the number of crosses, and then, incidentally, the tiny piece of the secret writing, which is 
only to be understood by member of sect or belief sect. Neither I nor you can understand it. It wasn't intended for us at all. But you see, apparently now it is quite a different plane, judged quite differently. So this is the, really the first point that I wanted to make. That it wasn't, it didn't come naturally to, to Russians to, to separate these functions of objects of worship and an, an, an art object. It's rather as though, perhaps, to make a parallel, somebody said to you now, on Saturday night we went to see Chekhov's The Three Sisters, and it was a very good production, we enormously enjoyed it. And then on Sunday morning we all went off to the Russian liturgy, and I found it was really fantastically well produced, and well coordinated, reenacted, the singing was perfect, every gesture was correct, as it should be, but well produced. But maybe you'd be surprised. But of course, in another point of view, it's a perfectly valid approach. Because factually, Byzantine liturgy, it is probably one of the most important aspects of Byzantine creative artistic feelings. You know, it's very important as a work of art. It's just that this hadn't occurred, you see, to anybody at that time. This was the first thing. You remember that, of course, in 18th century, it was in Russia, it was a different situation. A Russian monarchy was no longer concerned with Orthodox culture anymore. It was secular, Russia was secularized and westernized, but nonetheless, uh, old habits die hard. And actually, Russian metropolitans and bishops, they were really very aggressive when it came to discussing icons from any other point of view. And the same thing is true now. If you go to Mount Athos, you come away thinking they haven't any icons. So they don't show them to you because they don't think that you see the point in them, you see. And recently, we had in London a very interesting icon, wonder-working icon, Kurtskaya, Mother of God, which is reputed to be um, 13th century. So far I know, no expert has ever examined this icon. Never been seen. It's covered by the oclad, by the metal uh, cover that you see here. And a good deal less of the icon is visible than you see here. And, uh, of course, do you imagine it would be possible for me or you to say to the clergy, excuse me, but could you open it up and let us see the icon? Wrong point of view. Um, then this brings us to the next point, which is the point about the oclad, the metal cover. These were already quite common, in, certainly in the 16th century. But in the end of 16th century and 17th century, they become very much heavier, more ornate. And instead of offsetting the icon, as they had previously done, they very often obscure it, so that we can't really judge at all well about the painting. This, of course, was an additional reason why it was difficult to see what icons were really like. And then the third important reason, it was that, of course, icons were anyway not in the original state in which they've been made in the great period of Russian painting in the 15th century. When an icon is painted, it is covered over with a layer of varnish, olifia, and this varnish has the tendency to make the colors much more brilliant, to bring out some luminous quality, so that it resembles something like stained glass. But with the passage of time, it also attracts dirt, particularly if it's been with many candles or incense, and it darkens. And we can have, we have an interesting um, evidence, you see, about the extent to which they can darken over a period of years, because um, in about 1580, Boris Godunov decided that he would give 
enrich a client to, who blocks Eichmann's opportunity. It was common practice. You see, a Russian Tsar must do this, give a present to a famous icon. The trouble was that, uh, that the icon already had an Aklad given by Ivan IV. So what we will do with the other, the other Aklad? And he decided that the Rublev's icon, which had been painted as you probably know, around 1411, that Rublev's icon would be absolutely copied. And so today, when we compare these two icons, which used to stand side by side in the Mesne row of the Trinity Monastery, we can see the extent to which Rublev's painting has already become quite dark, the time of Boris Godunov, because you can see the artist he copied the colors exactly as they were at that time. It's quite an interesting comparison. Well, in the 19th century, all icons were generally presumed to be, to be dark or black. It was considered to be their natural state. You may remember very often in Russian literature, we have reference to the black icons hanging in the corner. But in fact, what is a black icon? A black icon, really, it's only a dirty icon. And I didn't realize this at all. And exactly how black they were, I can show you here. You see? It wasn't very easy in the 19th century to judge the aesthetical value of icon painting when all you see is this. Yeah. And uh, also, that's why in some ways the aklad, the metal, helped. Because at least with the metal here, you, had, you knew what subject was represented. Otherwise, you didn't always know what it was on. And at least you could see some kind of silhouette. You see, contour was, was available. Because you might have the black version of Kazan, for instance, not black at all. It's in fact probably Byzantine painting. But uh, here, uh, you see photographs taken in the 19th century of icons. The thing that they were stressing was their clouds, because that was more obvious. The painting was still obscure for them. They didn't know very much about it. These are all um, 19th century photographs, and incidentally, the captions are completely wrong as far as dating. <laughs> Uh, but so I think, um, apart from this question of dirt, there was another reason why it wasn't easy to um, appreciate icons in the 19th century. Even, you see, I think, if Russians had seen icons in their original state, in their clean state, they wouldn't have been altogether happy with them. Because in the 19th century, after all, there was a very definite idea about what constituted great art. Art was thought to be some kind of pyramid, some hierarchy, as it were. There were high arts and less important arts. There were civilized arts and barbarian arts. And there were peasant arts. And they all had their relationship in this scale. And artists, too, they formed part of this, of this hierarchy. And the pinnacle, at the top, it was Raphael, the beauty of Raphael which had never been surpassed, which artists might aspire to, but probably they will never surpass it. And for instance, Dostoevsky, who was that great Russian writer and Orthodox writer, over his bed he had hanging not the Vladimirsky Mother of God, but the Sistine Madonna of Raphael. So, therefore, 19th century critics looking at an icon would tend to ask the question automatically, how does Russian icon painting um, stand in relation to Italian art? Well, I'm afraid it didn't really stand very high. You see, Italian art stressed quite different aspects. 
particularly such things as the creative genius of the painter, his own imagination, movement, correct drawing and perspective, naturalism, an ideal of earthly beauty. And the Russian painter, as you know, had a spiritual vision. He stressed otherworldliness, faithfulness to prototypes, an immobility and inner calm, and an abstract oblique impressionism, which they couldn't at all understand in the 19th century. Therefore, critics in the 19th century tended to, to debate these questions. They were the questions that Goethe had asked, you see. How great is Russian art? And how does it relate to arts in Europe elsewhere? Now, this, these questions were debated throughout the 19th century and up till the revolution and after. But they also had a certain popularity chronologically. And the first view, which was the earliest view really, although of course it survived, was that which might have been called official church view of church hierarchy, which was that, of course, I condemn not really art at all, but that they faithfully followed Byzantine models until at least the period of Ushakov, Westernization of Russia in the 17th century. It is static, no change, because they're not concerned with creative art, they're concerned with dogma. Now this, to another group of people, seemed really a disgrace. Because after all, you know what they thought of Byzantine art in the 19th century. The stagnant thwart of the Byzantium. It is very unfortunate that Russian art was so closely tied to this. And so another school, led by Buslaev, and then after Buslaev, uh, the celebrated Nikodim Pavlovich Kandakov, he had the view that if you look at Russian art very carefully, then you will see that in fact it is Italian. And he describes, you see, some, some of these paintings as though he were uh, going across the uh, undulating plains of Lombardia, you see, it's really telling you that it's really Italian underneath the door. The only question was, where was he to find the proof? Where was this contact with Italy? And Kandakov hit upon an interesting idea. There was a school of icon painting in Crete, and here you had a mingling of two traditions the traditions of Byzantium with that of Italy, Venice, which created a kind of art that was halfway between the two. Of course, obviously some Veneto um, Cretan Byzantine painting must have come to Russia, and that gave them the stimulus to produce something more creative. Something more creative, because Kondakov was never quite convinced that Russian art was really great art, but at least he wasn't prepared to go the whole way and say it had no significance. If it had significance, it was because it was Italian in some way. The only trouble with this view that, um, that there is a connection between Crete and Russian 15th century painting is that the great period of Russian icon painting, it is the 15th century. And uh, a Cretan school, Italo-Cretan school, didn't really get underway until the 16th century. So chronologically, it doesn't hold up at all. And this was what was pointed out by the third group, which was led by a man called Paul Muratov. I must, at the very start, stress that from the point of view of scholarship, Muratov is nothing like as great as Kandakov. What Kandakov had done was to discover a system by which one could date Russian icons. Up till then, we had no idea when icons were painted. It was only stories you see from old believers. You see, and they can never be really relied upon. I remember in Moscow, they showed me once in an old river house, some icon was 800 years old. 
And when I went up the ladder to look, see, factory it was 18th century. So that these stories, they can very often be very interesting and sometimes uh, informative, but they're not entirely to be dependent upon. The other thing was, very often we would ask the question, uh, you bring me an icon to sell to me, and I say, where from did you get it? And they say, well, we found it in Chernigov. Aha, very interesting, must be Chernigov school, you see. And that princess was how the idea of Stroganov school arose. Complete 19th century misconception about Stroganov painting. They decided that, uh, you see, when they began to collect in a, in a big way, many interesting panels were brought from North Russia, from Sovichergotsk, Ustuk, Perm, all Stroganov areas. And many of them also had on the back written the name of Stroganov, members of Stroganov families. Therefore, they assumed that Stroganovs had workshops there and were painting these icons in these remote areas, which is nonsense, because although the Stroganovs had workshops in these areas, they couldn't produce such sophisticated work. They were specially commissioned, received by Stroganov family from uh, Tsar's workshops in Moscow. But they came to an assumption. So what can the cost be? Was he found a system that would really work up to a point anyway? That was, he knew very well already miniatures and manuscripts. And he applied the same criterion, the same knowledge of ornamental motifs, for instance, from the manuscripts to the icons. And it was in some way sensation, because here was something scientific rather than just tradition or legend. But Murantov wasn't a scholar. One may say that he was more a journalist. He managed to popularize Russian icon painting in Russia. Remember that chronologically he belongs to the period of Mieliskustva, the world of art, the symbolist movement, Russia's Silver Age. And you see, he first declared this is a great storehouse, and he first of, of a, a great art. He first put across the idea that uh, an aesthetical approach to, to icon painting. Um, but from point of view of scholarship, he didn't come out very well. And Kandakov criticized him very seriously for this. What he didn't know, he tended to invent. He also was the first person, and he hit on the right idea here again, to say it's nonsense that Russian art is influenced from Italy. Of course not. It's, it's Byzantine influence. And the fact that something happened in Italy may well be associated again with, with a Byzantine dialogue renaissance. And simultaneously, this renaissance from Constantinople affected Italy on the one hand and Russia on the other, where it developed quite differently. But Russian art, according to Muratov, was independent. It had its own creative genius, which was at the same time true to its sources, was true to Byzantium, to Byzantine norms. Well, so far, we have considered the views of really only a minority of people in Russia, that is the educated, enlightened elite. And many of these, particularly you see in the period from 1860 to 1890, they were not concerned with icon painting at all, because during this period, they had one great preoccupation, it was social problems. And they couldn't see what use icons could be in this uh, attempt to try and eliminate Russia's backwardness. It certainly wasn't very useful, and therefore it wasn't a socially useful art. And therefore, for this generation, they weren't concerned with it at all. But the majority of Russians were not, as I say, they were not educated, they weren't enlightened, and they weren't westernized. The majority of Russians <coughs> lived on quite another level of consciousness. They remained faithful to the climate of opinion, if you like, to the, the, the cultural values of their ancestors in the 16th century. They remained true to the idea, cultural and ideological harmony, 
of old Russia, of Muscovy the Third Rome, and of an orthodox conception of culture. Now, you see, for instance, if Dostoevsky had Sistai Madonna over his bed, when the peasants were shown, something that was interesting happening, in 1896 was opened the cathedral in Vladimir, the um, new cathedral with Vastinsov's fresco. Um, Kiev, Vodimsky Cathedral in Kiev, I mean. And uh, at this time, Russian educated public was thrilled by what Vastinsov had done. He seemed to have modernized the old concepts of Byzantine art, but kept the essence of them, and he seemed at last to have found a valid new national Russian culture, something they've been looking for for a long time. But some, one of these enthusiastic uh, uh, writers, who was in the building at the time, saw a group of peasants and said to them, aren't you proud of your new cathedral? And they said, no, they didn't like it. And they asked, but why? Because there's too much life in these frescoes. They're too naturalistic. And this person was very astonished because they thought that after all, that was the whole point of it, to get as much life as possible into it. So you see, they live in a different level of consciousness. Again, in the 18th century, Catherine the Great was going to visit, um, no example, was going to visit Vladimir. And in the Uspensky Cathedral, Cathedral of Dor Mission in Vladimir, at that time there was an iconostasis painted by, partly by Rublev. And they decided, clergy, hierarchy, who were in fact probably Ukrainians, because they usually were, and not everyone sympathy with old Russian culture very much, they decided that these paintings should be changed. The Empress is coming. We can't have such old dingy things like this. We must have something more classical. An interesting idea, because in fact, you see Rublev's work it is very close to Hellenistic sources, much more close than what they put in its place, which was, in fact, you see, an imitation of an imitation of an imitation. But they didn't see this. They couldn't, of course, at the time. What interests us is what happened to the old icons, the icons that were taken down. Certainly, they couldn't be thrown away. But it was Russian peasants who were anxious to remove them. And they took these fantastic icons away, and they built one of these wooden churches. You know the kind I mean. It was a, a, um, part of Russian popular culture. And here they again hung the old icons by Rublev, and they were quite recently rediscovered there in modern times. Now, no discussion about um, attitudes to icons in the 19th century or about uh, how we had so many icons have been preserved till the early 20th century would be complete without some reference to the old believers. Wherever you found old believer communities, there you found icons in large collections, big numbers. They couldn't exist without old icons. For them, it was in some way the holy of holies of their orthodox consciousness, which they felt to be threatened. And they were very much on the defensive. This was the inner, most personal symbol. And they did all they could to keep them, to save them. This attitude, of course, had been common in Russia before with everybody. You remember that is when Moscow was on fire, 1547, the Metropolitan of Moscow, Makai, he risked his life, nearly died, by going back into the Uspensky Cathedral to try and save the icon painted by his predecessor, St. Peter, icon of the Mother of God. And so also, in 1812, when Moscow was burning, it was old believers who went back into the flames of these churches to try and save these old icons, which, of course, 
were completely blank. So they certainly didn't say them from any artistic point of view. It was only, you see, and must stress, a religious point of view with them. They were holy symbols for them. And um, um, for instance, an, another thing, the attitude, attitude of Russian government to the old believers varied enormously. They tolerated them when they could, but they were very much afraid of them. And for, under Catherine, the situation wasn't so bad for old belief. And this time, they emerged from the retreats in the far north, in the White Sea, in the forest of Pamori. They came out of these, these areas, and they made a lot of money trading in the Volga towns. And there emerged a very important group of merchants, extremely wealthy. In fact, according to Menikov-Pichersky, who was a big 19th century expert on the old belief, already under Catherine, the greater part of Russian <coughs> capital is in the hands of the old belief. I don't refer to serfs, which is belonging to aristocracy, but capital, merchant class, is thoroughly um, um, in the hands of the old believers. Also, they were extremely strong, especially in Great Russia. Practically the whole of Great Russia was in sympathy with the old belief. That was to say, they were tenaciously defending the culture of their fathers against westernization. And um, in 1856, with the beginning of the reign of Alexander II, period of reforms were shortly to begin, was debated again the possibility of allowing the old believers the possibility to, to have open worship. They were allowed private worship in their houses, but open worship. And again, Melnikov Pichersky, who incidentally respected the old believers enormously, submitted a report to the Minister of the Interior, in which he said that if you grant freedom to the old believers, the greatest part of the great Russian peasantry will simply go over to the old faith. It was a dangerous thing to do. Therefore, in 1856, the doors of the main cathedrals of the old belief in Moscow and Petersburg, because they had been under Catherine permitted to build churches of the cemeteries in Moscow and Petersburg, uh, they were sealed, closed, and they remained closed until 1905, the historic manifesto of October 1905, which gave the constitutional monarchy. Now here, recently, surprisingly enough, was published in Russia, they allowed to publish, the highly important collection assembled by the old believers in the 18th century already. They were all this time in the 19th century, from 56 until 1905, locked up in this church. It was the main church of the old belief, the church of Ragoshka Kladvishya. And it may be interesting, although sometimes the dates are not accurate inside again, because again, it's the old believer tradition as opposed to a modern scholarly tradition. This is an extremely important collection. <coughs> that wasn't the only church, although it was the main church. It was a church of the priest sect. It was a sect, they had found themselves in the position that the bishops were arrested, and therefore they weren't able to appoint any new clergy. But <coughs> in the 1850s, they managed to get an Orthodox metropolitan who went over to their side, and they therefore reorganized the hierarchy. But there was another sect, it was the priestless sect who had this icon here. And they were rather pessimistic point of view. Probably at its beginning, one of the founder of this sect had come across some Calvinist um, ideas. And their theory was that grace had existed. The age of grace historically was a period in the world's history. It had come after the age of law. But now since the schism, it was finished. And they were awaiting the coming of the Antichrist. And sometimes they were not sure Maybe he's here. Maybe Russian Tsar is really Antichrist already. You see, they weren't sure about this. Well, their main church 
it was Prebrzezinska Kladishtia. And uh, there, as in all other churches, all chapels of, the, of this sect, when you came to the end of the church, where should be the iconostasis, suddenly you realize that there's nothing beyond. No priest, no possibility of sacrament. You get to the end, the royal doors are shut. They don't open, they can't open. It's a dead end, very pessimistic. But they did have marvelous icons. They did collect icons, and I should think that the one one repository of grace perhaps they considered left in the world was the vehicle of the spirit, the icon. The third important church in Moscow, it was Gidinovirchsky Church. Now this church was founded by Emperor Paul. Paul tried to find a compromise solution with the old belief. That is to say, he gave them the permission to retain the old way of worship, the, the, the wholeness of Byzantine uh, liturgical worship, as opposed to something which was quasi-Byzantine, so what the Orthodox Church had become. He gave them this right permission, and they in return recognized the validity of the synod, the Orthodox official Orthodox Church bishops. They weren't anti-Orthodox Church, and they weren't opposed to the government. So it was a compromise, some kind of unia, maybe, if you like. And their main church, it was in Moscow, uh, Nikolai Gedinovyevsky Monastery, founded at the beginning of the 19th century, in the 1820s. And also, it had a fantastic collection. And incidentally, some of these collections, as in these icons, they had the possibility to buy from the Synod of the Church, from the Synod. Because, you see, from the point of view of Synod, they were, again, they were Ukrainians, and they had these black icons. What to do with them? Uh, if they couldn't get them to the old believers, because they were against them, you see, but they sold them to a man called Kodolin, who founded this church. He actually bought them from them, had these big collections. And incidentally, here too, they had instruction in icon painting. It was the only place, well, not the only place by any means, but it was one, one of the few places in Russia where this was, icon painting was actually taught in the 19th century. Elsewhere, you remember the clergy had instruction about general history of art, Raphael, you see again. But they had no instruction about the theology of icons. It was one of the causes for catastrophic decline in icon painting in the 19th century in Russia. It was a tragedy. But at this monastery, because the university, they did in fact learn. And um, so here yeah, we could see icons in the 19th century. We could go to see them. Elsewhere, they were on show. At, for instance, the Trinity Monastery, you could go to the Trinity Riesnitsa, the treasury there. But the emphasis here was very much on treasury, rich or class, you see. But I will just show you now these fine settings, censors, gospel colors, more than the quality of painting itself. Um, ah, but there were some paintings in the Rumyansev Museum since 1860s. Not very many, but you could see them. First thing was to go and inquire where they were, and you would be directed to an annex of the Chamber of Prehistoric Antiquities. Very strange, but in any case, that's where they were. And when you saw them, they were really so black, they looked quite prehistoric. But if you look more carefully, you see that they were really more, more dirty than anything else, and that they were mostly 17th or 18th century, and very seldom much earlier than that. After 1905, when the churches were opened again, the, the two main Oblivion churches were reopened, many people went there to study the, the icons, including Matisse in 1911. But we had some difficulties there, too, because there was a mania for collecting, which started from the 1850s. 
It started from the period when the churches were closed and where rich merchants wanted to fill their houses from floor to ceiling with, with icons. It was enough to have an icon of the intercession, the Jesus, to make the whole room into a chapel. So the people were fetching these icons from the north, bringing them to them, and already charging really quite high sums for them. Under these circumstances, many people, they were afraid, for instance, in Prebrezhensky Kladvishche, they were afraid to, to hang the icons on the walls, especially the small ones, because they might be stolen. And on such an extreme, you see, old believers sometimes they themselves stole from the Orthodox icons. They didn't like that the Orthodox had, for instance, you may remember, Kazanske Boże Matyr, was stolen in the early 20th century, about 1902. And who could have stolen this item? Not from commercial point of view, not to sell. Certainly it must be old believers. And it turned up again in England about 25 years ago, and it's now in America. But I'm digressing. Um, yes. If, if you went to a Plebrzezinski church to see the icons there, there's a, one of the big icon collectors, a man called Zubala, who comes to me. His father was also a famous collector. He went to examine, in particular, an icon by Prokofi Chirin. Prokofi Chirin, he was a master of the Stroganov school, which was very much appreciated in the 19th century in Russia. And when he asked where this icon was, he was told, it's over there, and he saw it was a trunk, inside the trunk. And on the trunk was sitting Russian peasant woman. So he asked her very politely, went with a friend of his, Chinnagubov, uh, who was one of the men who was clever in getting icons for collectors. And he asked very politely if he could see the trunk. Certainly not, you see. I'm sitting here so that you don't see the icon. So he sleeps, no good at all. Then Chinnagubov said, leave this to me, I understand perfectly well how to deal with this woman. And he said to her, the reason why you don't want us to see your icon is it's a dub, and you're frightened it'll get out. It's just no good. The woman was absolutely furious. She took the trunk, tried to pull out the icon, smugly! Ah, yes, very nice. And so, in this way, we had to. But incidentally, the situation isn't always very much better in Russia today. It's more about that later. Now, I wanted to draw a character. Uh, uh, study of, a, of one of these old believer collectors because it's very typical for this period and in fact typical not only for this period but for 16th century and for 20th century. It's very, very Russian, of a certain type of Russian. He's a man called Izorovsky and he lived in a typical Muscovite house in the middle of Moscow with low ceilings, many rooms leaving one off the other and windows on both sides and between the windows there were banks of icons he was a member of the priestless sect. In fact, he was a religious instructor on, on the old belief. He wrote a number of publications about the old belief, and one of the most um, remembered now, it is his book against tobacco smoking, The Incense of the Devil. In any case, he had 1,200 old icons. But when I say old, they're dated mostly from 16th and 17th century. It was a period he particularly admired. It was, incidentally, also the period in which Russian aristocracy and Russian Tsar were still interested in Orthodox culture, and therefore it was reproduced and repeated by the uh, rest of the population who felt themselves deserted while the aristocracy and the, the emperor were living on a borrowed culture. It survived as a living tradition, we must remember, in modern times. Anyway, Isorovsky. Uh, uh, he lived exactly like a man in the 17th century. That was to say, he had very simple tastes. 
He had no luxuries at all. Everything was concentrated on the church. You see, just as 17th century merchants, they built churches. They never built themselves mansion houses, but they built churches, and they wanted to rival each other with a finer, more magnificent church, more icons, you see, more donations to shrines and so forth. Better club presents to Russian icons. Well, it was described to me by somebody who went past Izorovsky's house. What a fantastic spectacle it was to pass it on a big feast day. You looked up at his windows and you could see these banks of icons through the windows, through the ice which covered the windows, and behind there were these lamps, colored lamps, hanging in front of these masses of icons. I said, but didn't you go in and look at them? Certainly not. Izorovsky wouldn't show icons to anybody unless they were a member of his own sect. What do we understand about it? But as far as we got, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, he was governor of Moscow and brother-in-law of Tsar, and he was interested about icons. And he asked Izorovsky if he may come and see the collection. Was refused. Why? Because Izorovsky is representative of, I'm sorry, because Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, he is a representative of official Russian church and of Russian government. And quite apart from this, what in heaven's name would he understand about icon painting? Because it was point of view of Izorovsky. You don't believe me? Go to any, any church of Sinodal Church and see their icons by that side. Listen to this Pisna Pienik singing like concert. Not at all in the tradition of, of Russian Orthodoxy. Look how they do Zimoy Patwon, how they make prostrations, like camels, first one foot and the other foot, not like Baraslav, not like Orthodox people at all. They've forgotten, simply, they don't know what they're doing. So Isorovsky said no. But he brought up a number of orphans, people who, <coughs> children, members of his sect, he brought them up and uh, paid for their education, and if he liked, liked them, he got them off military service. And these boys, it was their job to read the prayers in front of his icons. The one luxury incident he allowed himself was tea, special tea from China, costing 200 rubles a pound. Uh, for icons, he paid vast sums, 25,000 rubles on one occasion, which is a great deal of money at that time. And if you compare this price paid in, say, 1880, then icons certainly haven't gone up in value at all over the last 60, 70 years. Um, well, Zizorovsky's end was rather tragic, as a matter of fact. At the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, he went to the bank to get out his gold, because he thought that the Bolsheviks were going to confiscate everything in the bank. And the word got around among his ex-orphans, who were soldiers in the army, Zizorovsky's gone for his gold. And they came in the night, and they murdered him. And it was described to me by someone who was present at the last occasion in those rooms uh, before they removed the icons because the Soviet government took them, took them all away after this, you see. For the last time, venerable old believers with white beards, they were gathered together in these rooms and the old singing, like in the 16th century, was sung, you see. And they couldn't get the blood out of the floor at all. But the old believers, they all stand, the best purposes, priests just like this, you may know, because uh, they have no priests to marry them. Therefore, if they're married, they have no right to cross themselves anymore because they're living in sin. They're unworthy to cross themselves. And as for a Russian, it comes instinctively to make the sign of the cross. It's better to stand like this to stop 
you know, the tendency to cross the throat. That was uh, Sid Prince's kind of mind of, of Vespaporzik. Incidentally, it was difficult to see Isolovsky's collection in 1890, and it is difficult to see it now, because this collection is divided between several museums. The greater part of it is in Peterkov Gallery. But so far as I know, not one icon out of all these icons is on show. They're all in the vaults downstairs. Isolovsky certainly wasn't particularly the main collector of this period. More important than him were Selim, Posnikov, Uvarov, and Pranishnikov. Pranishnikov, who built up his collection from among settlements in the Volga. Um, but a whole spate of collecting really had begun. And you remember that it coincided with the growth in Russia of the Slavophile movement. That meant, you see, Slavophile movement, it had already three generations, it went through three generations. And each generation, they learned more about um, exploring the history of old Russia. So, uh, I think if one was going to find a particular moment when there was a breakthrough, when there was a change, I would mention to you a man called Sonsev, an academic, academic painter, who, at a time when nobody among the, the Orthodox, the first of the were very interested about icons, Sonsev simply loved old Russian culture. That meant basically that he liked again gospel covers or class because they hadn't seen much of the painting. Anyway, Solstov spent a lot of his time traveling across Russia, across the empire, visiting one monastery and another, the great monasteries, small hermitages buried away in the forest that nobody went near. And wherever he could, he copied. Uh, he copied old icons, their covers, and so forth, very, very carefully. And from several views, you see, so that you would be no mistake about what it was like from the front, from the top, from the side, in three views. And certainly, it never occurred to Sonsov that his work would be published or, they, or be of interest to anybody very much apart from himself. But one day, somebody who was close to the court showed some of his sketches to Emperor Nicholas I Pavlovich. And Nicholas I, you see, was the first Russian sovereign since before Peter the Great to be in some way concerned and interested in Russian Orthodox culture. He decided that Russia again must officially become an Orthodox state, and that, for instance, Russian foreign policy must take into account that Russia is Orthodox. Russia is the protector of the Balkans, for instance, and, uh, of Christians under the Turks, and so forth. So the Tsar was very interested by this, looked at the drawings, and he said, print them. So they did print them, and they took some of the folios to him to show him the proofs. And Nicholas I passed them and said, yes, but tell me, where is the name of the painter? And they said to him, your imperial majesty, the painter has no rank. And he said, print his name. So if you look now, these, well, now they become absolutely historic and very important, huge folios, the, the treasuries of the Russian Empire, they're called. You'll see that on some illustrations, it says, painted by academician Sonsa, and on others, it says nothing at all. They were the ones that were ready to produce. Now, I haven't unfortunately got any of these fellows here, but I have got a couple of illustrations that were uh, taken from them and introduced in other books. And it might interest you to see what Sonsa had done. Here, for instance, is the Vladimir 
icon, the famous Vladimir Mother of God, which you probably all know very well, as it was in Songs of the Time, 1855. And actually, someone's written underneath in pencil, surely not the famous one, <laughs> well, certainly it is. <laughs> uh, anyway, you see that. And also, to, in order to compare with it, I can show you this was a book that came out by Anisimov shortly after the revolution, when the painting was cleaned for the first time. Also, it may interest you to compare compare these two pictures. This is a painting, a photograph from the 19th century of a Russian icon. And as you'll see, it's black apart from the blood, which uh, Sonsov had been copying and studying. And in this way, interest in Russian antiquities, they started with the Akhlad, they started with the 17th century, and they progressed further back in time, and then only finally they understood about painting as well. That's, that's the way it worked. So that is the, uh, what, what Sonsov was copying. And here is Sonsov's actual drawing. Also introduced in another book. And it will interest you because you will see that um, Sonsov, however hard he tried, he couldn't but be an academic 19th century painter. He had to correct the incorrect drawing. He couldn't, he couldn't prevent himself. And uh, he thought in different terms, ascetically. He, he couldn't be objective. None of us can be objective. So, for instance, everything much more square here. You know, just with this line compared with that line. Yeah. But it will, I think Sonson must be laughing now, because this book came out in America very recently. It's the latest book on Russian artism and in English language. And uh, the man who compiled it somewhere saw Sonson's illustrations, probably not in the original photo, somewhere else. And he was sufficiently confused to think that it was a genuine photograph. Sonson set himself the task of something photographic, you see. Exactly. And there are voice, probably felt the class, but he illustrates this here, he doesn't call it 19th century artist impression, he simply says it is 16th century Russian icon. Well, that was one thing that happened. Another thing that might interest you was the uncovering of certain uh, certain paintings, quite by chance, also during the reign of Nicholas I in Kiev, in the Sofisky Sabor, was done by uh, a local priest. And they removed certain partitions, certain uh, uh, paneling, which had been erected at the time when Kiev was under the Poles. And they discovered examples of Russian fresco painting and mosaics. So the priest who discovered them was very excited. But when Metropolitan of Kiev saw these, he was not very sure about this. What's this? Very primitive. <laughs> but not very beautiful. He read about Nicastinians. It's not beautiful at all. Rather hideous. <laughs> and so the priest said to him, It's fantastic. It's so early. I don't care if it's early, you see. You see, here no face, here no feet. People come here to pray, and they can't pray before such a thing in such a condition. And in any case, we now have learned so much more about perspective. We can improve on it now. What I'm going to do is call him an icon painter from Vladimir and have the whole thing repainted properly. So the priest was in despair. And he decided the best thing to do 
was to go to Nicholas I. And again, Nicholas I said, it must be saved. Because, as he said, uh, you see, maybe for us it's not very interesting, we don't like this, possibly, but maybe one day people have a different opinion. And that is very wise of him, I think. Well, not all early attempts of restoration or uncovering in Russia were as happy as that. Often they were disastrous. In 1882 to 1883, it was decided to do some work in the Volovishkin Pisabor, Annunciation Cathedral in the Kremlin, which you may remember, it was painted by uh, um, uh, Dionysius' son, Theodosius, in 1508. Well, the man who put on the job was Fartusov. Fartusov hadn't had much experience with icons, but he had no experience with icons, except perhaps that he'd been called in uh, to do the wall, some of the wall paintings in the Chram Christas Pasitila, the Church of Christ the Saviour, which you may remember was the, the big attempt by Nicholas I to found a church, uh, which was going to be in the national Russian style. It was a Slavophile building. And then, of course, next generation, they were very rude and said it's neither national nor Russian nor style. <laughs> but in any case, it was a, a first attempt. And so uh, uh, this chap um, was, was called in uh, to, to, to do it. And now he was put in charge of a restoration work. But he spent a lot of time restoring it, and uh, suddenly it was very exciting. He discovered all kinds of interesting things. What did he discover? My goodness, he discovered Italian painting. Just what everybody wanted. At last, the missing link. Here, you see, we are Italian, really, after all. How fantastic. And uh, so, but then after a little bit of time, certain people, they became rather worried about these Italian paintings. And, uh, for instance, historian Zabelin, who was a very great 19th century historian, he was rather worried. So Emperor Alexander III established an imperial commission to look into the whole incident. And after looking into it, they decided that the whole thing was one monstrous fraud. So um, it's rather interesting, because then uh, it was too late, the whole thing was ruined, and uh, they called in simply another icon painter, uh, from, I think, Pilot or something like that, to repaint it, they recognize the whole thing is gone, was lost, and no good, and the gear up is a bad job. And a man called Safona appeared in the scene, and he completely overpainted everything in the 19th century way. Well, immediately there were great screams and yells from the public, that you see this, what the hell, we had these marvelous Italian paintings, and they're being removed and covered up, and it's a disaster, and was lost for our culture, and it was quite incredible. But fortunately, uh, Fortunately for us, before they were repainted, they were photographed. And the photographs were kept in the Moscow Department of the Ministry of the Imperial Court. So now, after the lapse of time, we can look at these and we can judge for ourselves. And I think you'll find them very, very interesting. You will notice that in these frescoes, which were supposed to have been in the blood of this country porch, one face is appearing over the other, that there are hands and feet materializing out of nowhere. And they have a distinct look of, of uh, Italian painting, as seen through 19th century eyes. In fact, Kondakov, who wrote about it one time, was able to say they were quasi-Italian. I think it was an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's not very clear, but it was one of, one of the old photographs of what Fartusov understood. Also, um, I have here another attempt at scholarship made in the 19th century. Made, they were uh, by an amateur, it was 
of also many amateurs at this time, uh, Prince Grigory Grigorovich Dalgari, who was vice president of the Imperial Academy, president for the country for And he simply liked Byzantine models. He drew them as accurately as he could. And it'd be an interesting thing if you were to compare these with the drawings by Sonsi. I think Sonsi comes off rather better. This man is an amateur, and if you saw these drawings, these paintings, you might be excused in thinking that probably they are 19th century churches, designed design for 19th century churches. Not a bit. They're supposed to be accurate drawings of Byzantine monuments. Produced by the commander by Trump in 1893. So this is what they were facing, some kind of scholarship, the so-called, in this time. Now, another, another question. Cleaning. We can detect a change in the attitude of cleaning icons in the 19th century. Roughly between the, the, the first part of the century and then after about 1890. Here you have an icon. It is, you see, probably from the 16th century. You look at Dascar, panel, and so forth. This is more, most, most characteristic of 16th century work. But of course, it's covered in, a, in an applied made in the 19th century. And probably, and what happened to it, it was damaged in some way. Very often they were burnt, as you know. On this occasion, possibly it fell down, and something was chipped out of it. So it was given to the store to, to repaint, to repair. And the attitude of the store at that time was quite characteristic. He said, well, face is in good condition, and besides that, from reverence, he wouldn't want to touch the face, he'd leave the face. But there's some damage on the sapos, on the robe of Nicholas, and uh, therefore, better entirely everything repaint. Not just repair, but repaint the whole thing. So he repainted it, and he repainted it in quite another style. Didn't interest him that he should keep the same style. He painted it in what he would have called the manner of the Stroganov, which was basically the style of 17th century or you know, post Stroganov period, as understood in the 19th century. That's just in the side here. So when it was being um, now cleaned, it was thought possible that underneath one would find very little damage. But, unfortunately, in this case, as so very often happens to collectors in the 19th century, they're disappointed. What the, what, the, what the restorer had decided to do was make it easier to paint on, to take a brick and to remove entirely the old painting, leaving the face. <laughs> oh, yes. But this part we can everything remove. We can put new, new uh, gesso, new lift pass, and then begin a new painting on it. So it may interest you to look at it now. Um, here you have 16th century work, here is 19th century, and here it's uncovered, but unfortunately it's nothing underneath. These are 19th century, this is Paris and Galea. Probably it was put on because they were family members. And if in Russia you have one son, Boris, second son very often you call him Galea, must be Galea. <laughs> Well, as I said, we have three generations of Slava fields, and the condition certainly it's improved gradually. Um, people became more serious. And I think the great collectors of this period, they played a big part in this, discriminating people who began gradually to see what I think were, were like. Um, and it, it may be important to remember that uh, if nobody had done any cleaning or restoring in the 19th century, 
wasn't so much that they didn't know how to do it, as if nobody had asked them to do it, and it didn't seem necessary. It just was an attitude of mind. What was the point of it? You see, for instance, just to make this clear, I remember some years ago when I became very enthusiastic about cleaning icons, and in church here there were some quite black icons. And I was talking to one of the priests, and I said, um, it would be very interesting, you know, in Soviet Russia now they have chemical processes to do cleaning. And he said, oh, that's interesting. He said, do you think they're black, do you? I said, yes, I think they're quite black. And he said, um, I used to think that too, you know. And then one day, I looked at it very hard, I could see extraordinary things, feet and faces and hands, and the more I looked, the more I could see. And now when I look at it, I see more and more. You know, the icon is becoming lighter. I said, oh. But you can speed up this process by mechanical scientific methods, you know. He said, yes, maybe. He said, Mr. John, how much better when the icons clean themselves? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very, very characteristic. You see, also this is Russian point of view. What is the purpose of cleaning an icon? What, what to do it? Why to do it? And only gradually it came through. And of course, it came through with a, with a new kind of attitude. An attitude which it was that these are certainly very important spiritually, but they also have an aesthetical value as well. And the two are in some ways fused, you know. So, for instance, we have certain accounts which are very exciting by people in the late 19th and early 20th century about this process of, of cleaning as it progressed. Uh, I remember Sherbatov, Sergei Sherbatov, saying that. Um, he was linked very much with Astraukov and Astraukov's collection. And uh, once he bought a few, became known, you see, that he was a collector. And people would come sometimes bring to him in very bad condition and from remote parts of Russia, Nikon. It was always very, very thrilling that somebody would arrive with a big panel, quite black, so you couldn't see anything very much. He would call in one of the big restorers, like Chirikov, famous restorer in the 19th century. And Chirikov uh, would lay it on the table. First thing to do, you take some vegetable oil on it, cotton or something, and you gently wipe it. And then the black sheet becomes in some way like black transparent glass. And you may make out the rough contour, the time of the last repainting, and the subject. In this case, it was a magnificent miasme uh, icona of Christ in majesty. About 18th century, he judged. So, this is as far as you can go with the vegetable oil. Now, something more drastic. Chirikov took the spirit and poured it onto the baskan panel, lit it, immediately bonfires, he blurs it on the table. And the, the, uh, the alika, the varnish, cracks like a sort of rough skin, comes apart, bubbles, bursts everywhere. When the, the bonfire dies down, he took a sharp knife and inch by inch, for hours of work, he removed this crust. So underneath what he had was icon of 17th century. So Chinikov said to him, Vashyatsva, your highness, you have here a very nice 17th century icon, but it seems to me that from what I can see, there's something more underneath. You risk to lose everything if I proceed, but maybe we'll discover something exciting. So Shabbat said, well, right, go on. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Chirikov crossed himself. <laughs> and then, now ammonia. Took ammonia, put 
in the same millimeter, the same space, over and over again, thoroughly saturated with ammonia, and then gradually again began to remove 17th century painting until indeed he came, was coming down to a 15th century panel. Your Highness, said Chilikov, will you make a wager with me? Will you wager that when we get to the knee of the Savior, we'll find a small white spot? But Shabbat says, well, you can't see through the paint. Nonsense, you see. Certainly not Sure enough, when they uncovered it there, among the dark red folds of Christ's toga, gold hedging, edging, there was a small white spot where the lift cast of the ground which it painted was coming through. But how did you know? Not so difficult, said Chirico. What you have here is a magnificent rifle. It was part of the lowest tier of the iconostasis, mesmer iconos. Worshippers, when they come into church, what do they do? They go straight to the icon of Christ. They cross themselves and they kiss. And where do they kiss? Traditionally, the knee of Christ. Therefore, worn away by these kisses, you have this small spot. <laughs> well, um, I said that these collections were extremely important, that they really built up uh, possibility, a revolutionary attitude towards icon painting. And the first, uh, perhaps the most important, earliest, was that built up by Likachov. You see, Likachov, he was um, not an old believer, therefore he didn't do it from this, quite the same attitude as old believers. He was Orthodox. And uh, he was from Petersburg, very Western. Uh, and in fact, his relations with Likachov is quite nuts. Why is old Likachov collecting all these icons, got piles of them everywhere? What on earth is he doing with them? Well, Likachov, basically, he was interested in archaeology. He collected types, names. You know, I must have one black Gimelska and one Znan. You know, I have it already, like some collecting, this is what the point of view. Nonetheless, it was quite a step forward. He also went and he learned a lot from the old believers. There's one source one could go to in Russia and talk to the old believers and get a lot of talk, and some of it you have to sift it through, of course. But Likachov, too, he collected Novgorod, not Stroganov items. He, he was really, it was a peak of his collection, Novgorod items. Incidentally, Mikhachov again, he saw Italian influence in Russian painting. And the Vladimirska, Mother of God, which of course is pure Byzantine Greek painting, Mikhachov said it must be Italian. <laughs> and under, later on, under Soviet period, when this wasn't very popular, he apologized and said, no, you made a terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, um, well, Mikhachov, you see, for instance, he knew cleaned icons. And you may remember in 1906, there was a famous exhibition in Paris organized by Diaghilev. Exhibition of Russian art, yeah. you see. And at this exhibition, he offered everything was there, for, uh, except pre-division, he wanders, he didn't write wanders, there was no pre-division. But icons, they were exhibited in a clean state for the first time. And that's what's interesting, that icons were shown, cleaned icons were shown to the, the French public, Parisian public, before they were seen in, Russian by the public, in Russia by the public. But I don't know if they got a very good impression of it anyway, because and the, the, the decor, the design, was done by Bax, I believe I'm right in saying. I, and I, I believe I'm right in saying too that, that Bax was pretty well the first time exhibition had been planned as an exhibition rather than as an extension of somebody's drawing on, you know, specific as an exhibition. And Bax devised uh, that there would be a fantastic a brocade on the wall, and the icons would be against this brocade. So you, it was like a theatrical setting, you see how fantastically beautiful. But you pass by the icon quite quickly. It was just the whole effect they made together, rather than each one individually. But certainly this is a big movement forward. And of course, 
Uh, you remember that in 1898 was founded the Alexander III Museum in Petersburg, and that subsequently Emperor Nicholas II bought the Lipachov collection and presented it to the Alexander III Museum. Still, even, even at this stage, they were beginning to know more about icons, they were beginning to study them, they knew about Novgorod now, something about Pskov, although they were confused, they were certainly confused about Novgorod, and Stroganovs they knew about. When the emperor visited, passed through the, the vestibule outside the main gallery, there were some wooden images, you know, Nicholas Zaraisky, Zaraisky cat, and so forth. And he said, well, do tell me, what is this? And he said, don't get a match to it. So it wasn't very good. Anyway, um, then at the same time as Likachov was collecting in, in Petersburg, Tritiakov was collecting in Moscow. He began his collection in 1890, and he paid phenomenally high prices. 25,000 rubles for the first, his first piece was a 16th century traveling triptych. And he bought what he liked, not, no, not names. If he liked the icons, then he bought it. He was discerning and discriminating. You see. Above all, he liked, of course, wanderers and more than icons. But he, gradually, between 1990 and he was, was expanding his collection. And then, after Paul Tritikov's death, a um, man called Astrauchov was appointed the curator of the Tritikov Gallery. Astrauchov was really an interesting man. He'd started life as a quite simple work, uh, employee of Botkin Works. And then he married Mademoiselle Vodkina, and she was very rich indeed. And Ostrovkov was a man of taste. He collected Italian pictures, of course, too, and so forth. But after this, he came across icons. He never collected anything else. He was introduced to icons by a man called Chernagubov, who specialized in bringing them to collectors. And Chernagubov, as well as other people, purveyors of icons, saw that Ostrovkov really had some knowledge, and that what's more, he paid higher prices than anybody else. So that if ever there was a good icon going around, they went first to Astorokov, and then they went elsewhere afterwards. He had to pick it. And Astorokov really popularized the study of icons. He, he knew different sections of the Russian community who otherwise very often didn't meet. You see, he, he knew members of Russian aristocracy. He knew the artist circle. He knew the old believers. And he was some kind of intermediate between them all. And then in 1911, Matisse was in Moscow. He was, a, he was a guest of Shchukin. This time when Shchukin was building up his collection of post-impressionist paintings. And Matisse was taken to see Ragoshka Kladvishti, the old cathedrals, and the Ostrogov collection. And of course, unlike Izorovsky, people like Ostrogov were delighted to take people who were interested around their collections and describe to them what everything was. And Matisse was tremendously impressed. It was Matisse who, who when he, he bought some icons in Russia at this time, and uh, he made the remark that really one must travel not to Italy but to Russia, a modern artist, to understand, you know, some, to get something to help him in his, in his art, something new and vital, some new handling of um, uh, technique. You see, if you study Russian icons, it certainly will give you more. Um, well, certainly a family is given to religious observances, as was the imperial family, couldn't feel to be interested in all this. And as I mentioned before about Nicholas II, he was deeply involved in the whole problem. And in fact, any book on Russian icons that came out, he automatically received it. One of the few subjects that he always got, the other one was army. You see, he had automatically every book on this subject. 1902, he founded a commission. This commission had 
several aims. It was to uncover monuments and works of art, cleaning, process of cleaning. It was also, however, to encourage icon painting in the empire. The emperor wasn't happy with the decline it set in, wanted something about it. Why? Because icon painting in Russia was a living tradition always, even though it was being neglected for, uh, for so long. There were always in Emoja people who continued to practice it for themselves, not for patients, but for themselves. And it had never died. Not like Greece, where today it's dead and they tried to revive it. In Russia, it was alive. And therefore, the emperor, uh, through Nikodim Pavlovich Kandakov, gave big subsidies to encourage uh, icon painters to do better work, to, give it, to, to help it. Also, in 1911, was founded at Tsarskoye Solo, the Kozovsky church, designed by Pakrovsky, a very good architect, and containing a very good collection of icons. And you will perhaps remember that in this period in Russia, many collectors had, had the conception, how is an icon to be displayed? The modern idea is we will have a white wall in our penthouse and we will isolate it here. <laughs> well, it can't function as an icon, of course. But in Moscow at this time, people, especially at Yabushinsky, you see, he decided that we must build a church to, uh, to, to accommodate it. And it was, uh, sometimes overlooked, a really very good period for Russian physiological architecture, the final generation of uh, uh, South Field, uh, you see. I haven't got my, my very good illustrations to show you this, but here's one by Stusiev, who designed the church for the icon collection of Karatoninka. Uh, this one, there is some other church altogether. And also, you remember the church he built for the Nature's Elizabeth in Moscow, which is now the Central Restoration Workshop for icons. Um, now, 1913, in a way, is a, a significant year. This, this whole build-up of, of, of knowledge about, about icon painting and improvement, reappraisal. In 1913, it was, of course, Russia was celebrating the centenary of the dynasty. And two exhibitions were planned in Moscow, the Romanov exhibition and the Nikon exhibition. At the same time, it was decided that there would be um, um, the first monument, complete monument, all frescoes and so forth, would be cleaned. It was Ipatyev Church in Kostroma, because that was where Michael Romanov had been found after his election to the Tsarin. Incidentally, I forgot to mention, very important, that in 1904, um, had all had arranged for the cleaning of of the icon Barublio, the Trinity, which was in the, was in the monastery of Sergius and uh, Trinity Monastery. And that, of course, was a very big moment, because before that time, Roblov was only a name, but nobody could be sure what his work was like. Collectors, uh, old believer collectors, for instance, they usually boasted an icon Barublio. Kizhikov bought uh, three, but they were all 16th century, none of them were Barublio at all. It was a tradition, really. And now we have the first authentic way of looking at an icon of Barublov. You see, it's absolute evidence, documented. We know it was painted by Barublov, in spite of what Jervis Matthew said that it was Greek, not at all Russian. But uh, it, it's documented, you see. So it was a big, a big moment. So, um, yes, I customer in a type of church. It's interesting to know how did the commission set about cleaning it? They didn't have people like Bartos at this time who made such a hash of the Vladovishnik and so forth. They had the source, this is interesting, to traditional Russian icon painters, the Russian peasants, because they had conserved this tradition. They knew exactly how to work in one portion, one style or another, how to mix the colors. They knew exactly what they were handling. 
they hadn't cleaned the board because nobody had been interested, but now that someone was interested, certainly they would do some cleaning for them. So um, the commission, who were all scholars, but didn't know much about the technique, um, they merely discussed with these peasants, Russian peasants in sheepskin beards, you see, very simple, discussed them what they would do. Can you do this? Without Morton, of course we can do it, certainly. Right, proceed, crossed themselves, began to work. 1913, the job was done. And that was, of course, another big moment. And then I mentioned uh, the exhibition in 1913 in Moscow. I think it's only when we hear from somebody who was there present that we realize what, what an impression it made on everybody. Before this time, a few people had been interested. Uh, uh, artists and uh, educated people had been very interested, or old believers. But the general public had had no idea of what an important thing Russian medieval painting is. And suddenly, it was revealed to them in one, one, one show. And it coincided, you remember, with the, the arrival in Moscow of the post-impressionist painting. So these two completely new arts sort of burst on Russian <coughs> simultaneously. But Russian icon painting were their own art. So obviously, they were rather, very, very thrilled about this. They'd never conception before about the beauty of the colors. Certainly, some, some people had known about line contours, you know, with calligraphic precision of line, flowing line, but color, the brightness of the color, they had no conception of at all. And um, so it was a big moment. Everybody, I think, was drawn into this and affected by the general public, the icon painters of the time, who I think certainly some of the icon painters in the 20th century that I've seen, this short period after this time, around this time, they're, they're technically better than much produced in the 19th century. Um, then, of course, the artists. It was a tremendously stimulating thing for contemporary art in Russia. People like Tatlin, who were excited by line, Stilecki and Rerik, who understood something about mood, uh, Gancharova, who was in love with the color, Vrubel, who was interested in building up light in planes in the Byzantine manner, or how light hit a substance and impregnated it. And not only artists, but finally, perhaps I might mention thinkers. Somebody like Prince Evgeny Trubetskoy, who afterwards wrote his books, philosophical books, about the meaning of icons. Because after all, we've never seen icons that are covered over with dirt in these clouds, and it was necessary again to, to see what is the spiritual significance of the icon? What is it really, what is it really all about? And so he, he described, for instance, that what we've uncovered is not only great art, not only spiritual treasury, but it is perhaps too Russia's medieval philosophy, Russia's medieval ideology, but given to us not in words, but in color, so that everybody can understand it. Philosophy in color. And we too, now that we've discovered this, are rather aware of this. Many people who I've seen who've gone recently to Soviet Russia, many of them to see the post-impressionist paintings, come back enthralled with Russian icon paintings. They have undergone now, in our time, the same kind of experience, the same kind of experience that Russians felt at the icon exhibition in 1913. I 
My young friends are erudition, how many books, archives, libraries, museums, churches he must have been visiting and studying. Well, any question, please? Well, I wanted to ask a terribly primitive question. I want first of all to know, how did you get to see an icon? In fact, I can't tell you. I'm sorry. I'm hoping you wouldn't ask that. You seem to know everything. Well, in fact, the thing about this is I did know once, and I've forgotten. You can't remember. It is known. I mean, I promise if I see you next time, I'll try and find out by then. But it may be possible that somebody had returned from the West, had been travelling in Russia and had seen them. For instance, you know, during the last war, many German soldiers or German officers were in Soviet Russia. And they were very much struck by icons that they saw there in the 30s and elsewhere. And they returned to Germany absolutely enthusiastic. And that's why much of the early research into Russian icons has begun in Germany. Why there's so much interest in Germany. You know. After the war. After the last war. After after the first world war, yes. But the chief question I wanted to ask Korea, because nobody spoke about it, that first exhibition of the Icon Lives, 1906, the exhibition that he yes, brought yes. to Paris, yes. which actually was his first work, the other work. First production of Yager. Has anybody got a catalogue of that exhibition? Yes, I have seen one. Really? Um, Mr. Isiliano, I don't know what you know. Isiliano? Isiliano, he's the president of the Icon Association in Paris. He, he showed me a catalogue. And also, I, I forgot to mention that there was also uh, the first exhibition in Russia was in 1890 in the Historical Museum, but they were not cleaned really at that time. Just beginning when they began to be. Sorry. But Jagged is actually a 1906 exhibit. It has a part of the exhibition with the icons. Yes, about 30. And presented yes. by Bax. Yes, that's right. About, about 30, you know. Yeah. 30 icons. Yeah. And of course, as you know, Bax wasn't particularly sympathetic because he was a Western. Oh, yeah. He was promoting, actually, the, the, the art of being uh, neoclassicism, which had been frowned upon from the previous year, and was re promoting this. And you have to present your Western He was in the side. Well, but it was also Jagger's taste. Yes, it was also one of the. Well, Jagger was the organizer. Yes, but it was also his taste. But it was exactly what he wanted. Yes, he selected for that reason. Afraid I haven't. No. Um, I hope one day that we'll see a uh, member of the sect who will be prepared to decipher it. I imagine that the kind of thing it said probably is just simply something like, God help us against the Nikonyanye and the Nikonites, or something of that kind that they usually say. But I, I may be quite wrong. No idea at all. One may possibly suggest that it, it's in some way a substitute for the altar they didn't have. Uh, you see, because you have the cross here, which you find normally in the altar, and you have the seven uh, like the seven, like the, the lamp which stands on the altar. It's always conjecture, of course, because one can even say these lines they resemble the robe that bishops wear. You know, not the sacrus, but the other ones they wear at evening service, and which there's an ancient figure of speech. You know, the lines that they run across his vestments. The speech with which the bishop instructs the people. Mm. And therefore, maybe in some way the icon is again a substitute for bishops, which they can't have, and the icon must instruct the people, because they never will have bishops anymore. <coughs> but this is, of course, again, that's what I'm guessing. I think the Russian community is not to be very proud of my 
and Armenians, Greeks, there as well. Yes. Uh, Records of Dutch painters, particularly. I think that was somewhere where Italian age changed. Very possibly. But this is particularly the aesthetical point of view of 19th century. You know, you know, I think yeah, that, that was the, what they tried to find. Yeah. They didn't actually influence somewhat earlier. Mm. Now, of course, Russia in the 19th century was only imitating what had been told in the West was the right thing. Well, yeah. Actually, it was one, one culture for the more really. They followed what, what, what the West told them what to do. Ushakov and all his contemporaries certainly knew Western art through princes, not through originals. Mm. Possibly also probably yeah, seen some Dutch painting in a merchant's house yeah. too, as well as a engraving. More questions? Speaking of icons in the 19th century, on the same scale as today. Um, they were very good at producing an icon whichever portion they didn't call it school, whichever style they liked. It wasn't sort of so much deliberate faking. The thing is that many icons in 17th century style were produced naturally in the 20th century because they lived in the kind of 17th century climate anyway. They behaved and thought like 17th century men. And the thing is that nowadays when we see these icons, we automatically assume they must be 17th century, whereas in fact, very often, they're 19th century. It's only by perhaps sometimes the crack there in the condition of the panel that we can be sure they're much more recent. Deliberate faking, I don't think so. It's more a question of finding the old examples and bringing in people who were known to be interested, because they became more and more collectors. I only mentioned a few of them. Yes. Uh, well, as soon as there was a demand for them, I think they begin to do it. Uh, among the immigration, again, enormous number of 17th century so-called icons in, in the Baltic area, particularly. Lots of fakes came from the Baltic area in the post-revolutionary years. And the little ones fake, I mean, they don't know, don't they? You mean the sort of small? Well, that's not, not, again not faking so much as you, you use the same mold over a very long period of time, and the, the composition of the mold may be 17th century style, yes, yes. and the mold is existing still, so you go on reproducing. Yes, you can't. In fact, you can't really be sure with this at all. But and Alexander III, period, the end of the 19th century, they were very interested in working with enamel and reviving that, and working with these kinds of metal crosses and things. It was something they were, they were interested in, and many of them date from that period. And somehow, in London, they generally tend to get called 18th century in a lump, whatever they are. No more questions? Then, let's join Jean in our room.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast, brought to you by the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. This episode was recorded live at Pushkin House in Ludbrook Grove on the 9th of May 1969, and was archived by Anastasia Karo, digitised by Andrei Levitsky, and was edited and produced at Pushkin House by me, Ravi Hay. For more archive recordings, please make sure to subscribe to the Pushkin House podcast, and for some more modern content which continues this strain of rigorous intellectual searching, make sure to check out our blog and keep an eye on our upcoming online events.